This week we're talking about chasing the extremes with Mark Adamus, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. I am incredibly excited for today's show. Yes, I know I say that in every show, but I really mean it today because we're talking to Mark Adamus. Mark Adamus is probably, in many people's eyes, the the pioneer of the really epic, dramatic landscape. You see a lot of Mark's influence in many, many people's landscape photography because he was really kind of one of the first people to create those really dramatic, epic landscapes. The word epic I know gets very, very overused, but it is pretty much the only appropriate word for most of Mark's work. His work is absolutely incredible. If you're not familiar with Mark already, make sure you go over to his website, markadamus.com. Incredibly inspirational stuff. So we're going to be talking to him about some of the really remote areas that he goes to, some of the logistics for that. We're going to talk about weather Towards the end, we actually talk a lot about conservation and the negative impact social media has on mental health. So sit back, relax, enjoy the ride. We're talking with Mark Adamus about chasing the extremes. So I'm excited because I am sitting down with the one, the only Mark Adamus. It's really awesome to have you on the show, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's exciting for me and because this is the part where I flatter you until you don't know what to say. <laughs> but it's exciting for me because you're one of those guys that you not only inspire me, but you inspire everybody else that I'm also inspired by. Like you are, when it comes to the epic landscape, you are the guy. So it's really exciting to have you on, man. Thanks for coming. Thanks, man. When I think about Mark Adamus, I think about a guy that goes out and shoots a ton. You're out there more than anybody. What does a normal year look like kind of contrasted to this crazy year that 2020 has been? Well, I enjoy the, certainly the exploration aspect of photography. I think for me, it's important to make uh, images from places where I don't necessarily know uh, what I'm going to find when I get there. Uh, That process of discovery is a big part of my own inspiration in art. Uh, Certainly, I spend a lot of my year uh, researching possibilities for, you know, locations or regions, you know, that I could go to. It's not uncommon for me to spend time, you know, on five or six continents each year. I think uh, prior to the whole pandemic shaking things up a little bit, I was actually supposed to be on all seven uh, continents next year. I don't know how things are going to turn out right now, but, you know, it's certainly it's a big world out there. There's a lot of places um, that I haven't seen. I think that we have a tendency in this day and age to kind of follow what's on Instagram or what's in our own feeds for the purposes of trying to obtain those uh, images or like images ourselves. Um, but for me, I think uh, what's important is is doing something different, kind of going my own way. Certainly, though, uh, I'm inspired by the, the teaching aspect as well. Uh, I love being able to show you know, people a world that uh, they've never seen, do things that they've never done. 
I've taken hundreds of people backpacking for the first time in their life and remote mountain ranges in all over the world. And I just, uh, you know, even if I've been there before, I I love uh, being able to experience uh, the place again, maybe for the first time through, through their eyes as well. The whole like being inspired by the exploration comment that you made it, that really speaks to me. I don't get to experience it as much as I would like because I don't go into the, you know, some of the remote places that you do, but I can definitely understand why you do that. Like last year, for example, how much time did you spend like out actually photographing as opposed to at home scouting and planning those trips? Um, Usually I plan trips uh, in between trips. You know, I don't actually come back to a uh, home per se. Uh, I was gone about 11 months a year. um, And that's that's pretty typical for me. Uh, I'm a nomad. Yeah, I was probably, you know, in the field, uh, backpacking or camping, you know, on location away from transportation resources of any kind, probably about a hundred days last year. And, uh, I was in route, uh, to or from uh, those locations or, uh, photographing maybe other locations that I could drive to for at least another 150 uh, days last year. Man, that is hardcore, Mark. I, do you realize just how hardcore that is for the average person? That oh, uh, it, does, man. it does sound that way, but uh, this has really been uh, the focus of my adult life. I, I love to mm-hmm. keep it moving. Um, I love to keep exploring the nomadic uh, lifestyle, if you will, is uh, actually very comfortable for me personally. I've always uh, endeared myself to it, even before the days of uh, internet and social media and everything. Uh, it was just buying as many map books as I can and as many topo maps as I can and uh, just getting out there, never quite knowing where the winds are going to blow me. So when a person spends that much time out shooting, I know like for some of us that don't get to shoot as much as we would like, we tend to put a lot more pressure on ourselves during that small amount of time that we're out taking photos that like, you know, this is my window. I have to get the shot. Do you feel like when you're out as much as you are, it takes some of the pressure off to get an amazing shot at every single shoot because you know you have, you know, the next week or two to try to get that shot? There are uh, certain times where it does. Maybe, I guess you could say, take the pressure off a little bit if if I happen to have a lot of time. But I think that there's also uh, plenty of times where the journey to get to the location has been so long and and arduous. And I'm not sure if uh, I'll be able to get back to that location uh, anytime soon. You know, and it's just absolutely spectacular. That I definitely, I mean, I want to get the shot as, as much as the next guy. And there's plenty of times it doesn't, doesn't work out for me, but you know, I, I just enjoy being out there. You know, it's, uh, it's never a loss, I guess, is what I'm trying to say is it's never, never a complete loss in this game. There's always, uh, you know, this, the prize that is being out there. Worst things you could be doing with your time than, you know, in some of the most beautiful places in the world. When somebody looks through your portfolio, they're they're obviously seeing the cream of the crop, you know, the 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 very best stuff. And a lot of it is just so impactful and dramatic. A lot of us when we go out to shoot, 
especially when we've been shooting for a while, sometimes it's a little bit hard to feel inspired to take the camera out of the bag if the conditions are not what you want it to be. As much as you shoot, do you find yourself trying to, you know, wait for the conditions to be exactly what you're envisioning? Or do you actually, you know, pull the camera out of the bag, even when you know that you're not going to get a photograph, just to kind of go through the motions of taking a photograph? Uh, No, definitely not. Uh, I have to be completely overwhelmingly inspired, you know, Mm -hmm. to take the camera out. I actually take it out very seldom. When it does come out, I I usually, you know, get the kind of shot at least that was was speaking to me at that moment. Uh, It's not uncommon for me to go a week in the field without even taking the camera out. I I take very few uh, actual photographs. I can relate with that. I feel like that's just just the nature of, you know, doing photography for longer and having more opportunities to take photos you turn into, at least I refer to it as turning into a conditions snob where if the light's not right, the camera's not coming out and I'll just come back another day. I think think it can be more than just uh, conditions though. I mean, there's certainly a lot of different uh, components that go into making a kind of image that I want to make. I usually start with an emotional component that is speaking to me uh, in that landscape at that, at that time. I mean, even if it is rainy and stormy, you know, and I've I've been out there alone for a week in these nasty conditions, you know, maybe on an emotional level, I'm looking to make a kind of image that in, embodies something of, of those characteristics. And, you know, even if the light isn't uh, great, you know, I'll be inspired to try to create something, you know, from what I have. So when you're in some of these really remote areas, what what is a long trip for you? What's an average trip? What's a long trip? Like what length of time are you typically out there? Well, I've been on a trip since about 1996. <laughs> what kind of trip? <laughs> sounds yeah. very like a 60s reference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, like uh, my whole adult life, I've I've really been been a nomad as far as wilderness trips where I'm removed from any sort of uh, nearby transportation. Like I don't have a vehicle or an airplane or a boat just sitting there waiting for me. I think anything over a week, you know, is getting into the longer side of things. I've I've gone more than a month uh, before without seeing any sign of humans ever having been to that place, without talking to anybody, without uh, making any sort of contact of any kind. But I think anything over a week, you know, definitely starts to feel like a longer trip in terms of uh, preparation and equipment and, and everything else that goes into it. Yeah, the, just the technical logistics of of those longer trips, especially, we, you know, we're not talking about Hawaii or something. We're often talking about like Alaska, northern Canada, cold areas. What are some of the like logistical stuff, you know, gear that you have to take? What does your backpack, you know, weigh and what's it look like as far as the gear that you take? Well, it really certainly has a lot to do with uh, weather and it also has a lot to do with the length of the trip. And then it has to do with the terrain that you encounter. Equipment for glacial terrain high in the mountains would be different than desert terrain. And, you know, a two week trip would be a long, you know, a lot different, uh, you know, than a, a two day trip. And, you know, minus 20 would be a lot different than plus 30. 
you know, so I have uh, different methods for determining uh, how much food, how much gear, how much weight to carry for each trip. Uh, typically, I find that if you start with the lowest temperature encountered being about 60 degrees Fahrenheit, then for every 10 degrees colder it gets, you're going to have to add two pounds to your backpack. Hmm. Uh, I also find that I usually uh, pack about one and a half to two pounds of food uh, per day, and that equals anywhere between 2,500 and 3,500 calories with 60 to 70 percent of that coming from fat. So it actually ends up being uh, something of a uh, mathematical formula that you can apply to make sure that you have the uh, right amount of uh, insulation, protection, food. Certainly, as far as gear goes, it's a it's a very diverse, wide ranging, you know, set of equipment, you know, for each individual specific trip. You know, there's gear lists that I make up for different types of trips and different types of, of terrain of, of different lengths. I think with a wow. photo gear uh, that usually stays at right about 15 pounds, you know, for most of my remote wilderness trips. <laughs> that is so much to consider for a photo trip. I think a lot of people that are, you know, the weekend warrior that doesn't stray too far from the car, their their jaws have just dropped because that's just so much to consider. What, how, yeah, what about it, it like sounds, that is specific to backpacking, though, you know, with the you know, when you're carrying everything with you, it's just a different set of considerations. Um, certainly, you know, in the vehicle based trips, you know, the main factor to consider is, you know, how much of the trip uh, might have the potential to include, you know, off-road uh, or rough road uh, travel. And if uh, so, then, you know, how bad is it going to be? When I listen to how involved some of your trips are, you have to be so motivated to get out there and to, to work. And I think that, you know, especially we're sitting here in the midst of 2020, which for me personally has been very, very hard on my motivation. It's a combination of there's just so many people outside and I, you know, the weather hasn't been great, but also, you know, just kind of mired in the negativity that is 2020, like in a normal year, like, you know, previous years, what keeps you so motivated to, to, to just get out? Is it the fact that you're kind of chasing the way you feel when you're exploring an area? What is it that motivates you? What is it that keeps you inspired and motivated to stay out there like you are? For me, it's the freedom of and probably the, the simplicity of the quality of life. I know it sounds complicated, but when I'm out in the wilderness and I'm waking up, you know, in a tent that day or in the back of my truck, and my only objective is to photograph and to walk from one place to the next, and I don't have social media, you know, and I'm not needing to be uh, connected at all times. There's not these expectations that I need to do this and that and these other things, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely promotes a artistic thought process. It definitely is addictive in certain ways. Uh, I got out of school when I was 15 years old because I just had to experience it. I just had to go down that path and, and see what it brings me every day. I think for me, it's just the freedom of the quality of life and 
something I've always been very passionate about, the humbling power of being out there and, and seeing these forces so much uh, greater than ourselves, you know, being out in a, a blizzard or a thunderstorm or, you know, just looking at these giant, you know, sentinels of mountains, glaciers, you know, waterfalls, you know, and being such a small part, you know, of that environment is, is very, is very humbling. It's definitely has the ability to uh, inspire. I can relate with so much of that because I think we're inspired by a lot of the same things. Like my my favorite part of being out doing photography and my favorite types of photography are, are the things that kind of put me in my place as a human. You know, I love big, interesting weather. I love big, interesting surf. I love feeling small, tiny, and insignificant. You know, sometimes it's just sitting under the stars and looking at all of the just the magnitude of the universe, sitting under a thunderstorm and watching clouds roll by that want to kill me. You know, I, I love just feeling small in nature and just observing. There's a certain uh, liberating feeling that happens when your day becomes simple. You know, it's like boiling down life to its most simple form where, okay, I need to wake up. I need to visit nature. I need to eat something. And then I need to walk over there. It's just boiling life down to its most simple elements. That's the way life uh, is supposed to be. And I think it's the yeah. way that it was, you know, at, at one time, you know, before we had to be, you know, connected to everyone and everything and every time. And there was always that expectation, you know, hanging over our head. And there was always this ability now, you know, to get so much done that it, it just seems expected, you know, and yeah. it's uh, great to just have a clean break from that and go back to that simplistic uh, quality of life. There's something so therapeutic about just laying on your back, staring up at stars. I feel like that, like you said, that's the way life is supposed to be. That's a human's natural habitat. And no wonder that it's therapeutic to be out in your natural habitat because we've been living in a zoo, <laughs> you know? It's, we have, but uh, also let me just say that, you know, even if we're not lying on our back, looking at stars, it, you know, even the most difficult, hardest days that I've ever had in my life outdoors are very, very simplistic. Galen Rowell, my real idol and inspiration growing up, he used to say the higher I go, the more simple life becomes. And I think by that, he means that even in the face of these tremendous challenges, you know, exhausting yourself up high in the mountains, fighting for, you know, every foot that you gain, there is only one objective in front of you at that moment. And that is to, to keep going to either uh, succeed or, or not, you know, in that particular mission objective and everything else falls away. And I think that it is that simplicity and that clarity of mind that comes from being in that state that I find uh, so addictive. It begs the question that as much as you've been out in nature on these long trips, you, you had to have had some fairly hairy moments out there. Okay. Is there anything that comes to mind as far as, you know, wildlife encounters or just times where you, uh, you were a little closer to death than you wish you would have been? Oh, yeah, certainly. One time I had to drop my backpacking pack down a 500 foot cliff. I just I just couldn't make it. I had uh, gotten myself in a situation where 
I was trekking through the boundary ranges of Alaska, trying to shortcut my way across this very deep valley to the other side. And on my way back up, I climbed up some very, very, very steep rock and I was wearing probably a 70 pound pack at that time. And I got into a point where it was very loose and I couldn't take any more steps forward. And I also couldn't uh, down climb the slope that I had just climbed. And mind you, I'm two weeks into a trip and the nearest person is probably 50 miles away from my location. You know, I'm by myself out there. I take stock of the situation, look around. And, you know, I finally just decided that the only way out of this situation was to relieve myself of my backpacking pack. So I just took it off. There was not a ledge to put it down on. There wasn't a a way to safely lower the pack uh, behind me from the ledge that I was on. It was everything I, I couldn't even reach. I mean, it was so steep, I couldn't even really turn around uh, to put it anywhere. So I just had to heave it off of my back and, oh, and watch the pack and all of my precious equipment go bouncing 500 feet down to the bottom of the cliff. And then it was only at that point that I was able to very, very slowly and carefully spend the next 30 minutes or so climbing back down uh, to it, picking, picking up the pieces. Fortunately, uh, my camera gear was uh, inside a padded case, inside the padded backpack, surrounded by things, and was not damaged in the fall, but I blew out a couple zippers on my pack, broke a couple of buckles, kind of had to lash things back together in order to continue on my way after I'd picked up the stuff that had come out all over the hillside on my way back down. <laughs> Oh, that is terrifying. Yeah, like, oh. it could have probably been worse if I had lost the camera, but <laughs> could have been worse still if I had tried to continue up with the pack. So just do what you mm. got to do sometimes. One of the rules, you know, that I try to have for myself is to never climb up something that you can't climb back down. <laughs> so that's that, that's why. You know, a question that comes to mind just kind of, uh, based on my experience, I find that as I lead more workshops, it really cuts into my own personal shooting time. During a normal year, you're leading a lot of groups out into the wilderness. Do you still find plenty of time to, to shoot for yourself? I think quite a bit. Uh, definitely. I mean, this year, almost all my shootings for myself. Right. That's one nice thing about the pandemic, right? But uh, it's about the only nice thing about it. <laughs> yep. I think I, I generally spend maybe about two to three months a year, probably closer to three on exploratory trips that are either solo or with just one or two close friends. Uh, oftentimes people that I've met uh, during the course of uh, leading trips all these years who just happen to be very adventurous individuals who have a passion for similar things, a similar sort of approach to uh, exploration as I do. Yeah, I mean, uh, probably two to three months uh, every year just doing completely uh, my own thing with no expectations to others as a group. Um, but certainly with the groups, I'm not sticking to just the places that I know for certain what we're going to find at this hour of the day on this day of the week and mm -hmm. everything. You know, I, I lead a very uh, spontaneous, very flexible, very reactionary type of 
tour where there's not maybe a set itinerary and it is very adjustable for the weather and current conditions and anything that strikes my eye along the way. So you kind of lead your workshops like you like you would lead your own you know, photo excursion, meaning like yeah. you remain flexible and you go where the light tells you to go. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I want to bring that uh, philosophy to people. I, I really believe that I should, you know, show them uh, my process through doing that. And I mean, that's what works for me. Also to do the type of photography that you do, weather is incredibly important. Yeah, I think I, I don't remember who I was talking to, but somebody that knew you and been around you a lot was like, you know, that guy, he knows his weather. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the importance of amateur meteorology. Oh, did I say that right? Am being yeah. a student of the weather, like how important that is, especially for the type of photography you do. Well, certainly it's, it's good you mentioned that because it is very important. Uh, meteorology was my first love in life, you could say. At a very, very young age, I was really fascinated by the weather. I think uh, when I look back on it, as you know, my adult life has gone on, I think I kind of viewed understanding of what the weather was like in different places as kind of a means of escape to those places. It was a, a connection to places that I couldn't be at or visit. And I was fascinated by it. I was actually a pretty weird child. I, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I graphed uh, the weather, actually, uh, oh, wow. when I was eight and nine years old. I would, I would get the newspaper each day, and I would look up what the weather was like at different locations around the United States, and I would put it on a wall graph <laughs> of all things. Wow. I would make my parents uh, maps and charts that uh, depicted what the forecast conditions were going to be for the next week. You know, I, I, I was completely, this is about the age that they started to worry about you. Yeah, oh, they did. I mean, they were like, what in the hell is wrong with this kid? No, I'm just kidding. But, so, uh, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I was, a I was, I was a complete weather geek. I just a fanatic, uh, with it growing up. I mean, it honestly has as much to do with the rest of my life as mm -hmm. anything though. I think it was, you know, like I said, a way to kind of feel closer to places that I wanted to be and visit and certainly a, a love of geography too uh, contributed to that. You know, I was always the geographer. I'd always have my parents, you know, buy me as many, you know, maps and map books as I could possibly get my hands on. And I would just wonder, you know, what is this place like? And, you know, weather has such a, a huge you know, impact on, on what a place and a people are, are going to be like and, and how they mm -hmm. get along and interact with their environment. As I, uh, grew up, I, I really kind of became, you know, most interested in the extremes, uh, in weather. I guess I was always kind of interested in the extremes, but I, I, I found the ability to put myself in those places where I could really feel uh, like we alluded to before, the the humbling power of, you know, being out there in those, you know, incredible conditions, you know, severe thunderstorms, blizzards, that sort of thing. And I think that it shapes everything that I do as a photographer. You know, I find it uh, difficult to teach meteorology because so much has to do with uh, experience with a 
particular type of terrain, type of landscape, a type of weather system that, you know, there's so many variables to look at that it's it's definitely a challenge to convey the knowledge that I have about it to others, but it's certainly something that I do every minute of, of every day when I'm, you know, in search of the next photo. I'm always, always looking at what the weather is going to do. It's such a big part of, of light and atmosphere and everything that, that makes for great landscape photographs. And I, I think that love of, of the weather really shows in your work. It's one of those consistencies that is there in your work from the very beginning. And that's kind of one of the interesting things about your work, I think, is that, you know, you've really kind of stayed the course with what it is that you do. A lot of people, you'll see this evolution in their in their work where they start with the grand landscape and then it's funny one of the questions that came in over on instagram is when is mark going to fall in line and start doing telephoto abstracts <laughs> i thought that was really funny because that's a it's a pretty typical arc in a person's progression you know they start with the grand landscape and then they start photographing the smaller scenes You've always kind of stuck with those larger, really dramatic scenes with a lot of depth and a lot of interesting weather. I think that love of the weather has kept you consistent in your work, I think. I think you're probably right. Although, you know, I certainly do probably put more abstract work on my website than I do uh, maybe on Instagram or some of the the mainstream forums. But yeah, I mean, that's that's a fair assessment. Uh, it's it's a love of weather and skies and, and light uh, that's always uh, kept me very consistent to that. I, I wouldn't change it for anything. Every sunset that I've ever seen is is very different. So one of the questions that has came in when I asked for people to kind of send me some some thoughts for questions to ask you, uh, one of them is. Are there places in America that are still unexplored? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. I, I think we're living in an age here where, you know, every everybody can see everything if they look at a satellite, you know, look at Google Earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, so is it truly unexplored? You know, no footprints ever been there. No eyes have ever been laid upon it. Probably not. But you know, I think as far as uh, the types of imagery that we see online, there's more unexplored places today than than there was 10 years ago. I, I honestly believe that. I think that we're living in an age that has actually caused everybody to go to the same places because yeah. information is so easy to get these days. Uh you know, it used to be that just getting lost on your way to finding whatever it is you were trying to find in this book or magazine or whatever you saw was part of the process. And you'd ended up discovering a, a lot more during the journey. But now everybody has GPS coordinates to the exact, you know, square foot that they want to shoot from and everything else be danged. You know, they yeah. just uh, they get this tunnel vision that requires them to go to this exact spot at this exact time and everything's scripted and laid out for them. So I think there's there's more unexplored places that you can have to yourself now than there has been in a really long time. Yeah, that's a great point. Nobody gets lost anymore, which means that people just go to the destination, but nothing on the way to the destination is, you know, explored very much. Absolutely. Yeah. You used to have to look at every last little thing along the way to figure out just where you were going, let alone what you were going to find. 
And, you know, now it's just so easy that it just created these huge crowds going to these iconic spots and people see that and they think, oh man, I don't want to do this. You know, like everybody's out there going to these spots. Well, you know, try going to some place that you didn't see on Instagram before, (laughs) you know, (laughs) there'll probably be nobody there because everybody's in that spot. Yeah. Thinking about the Pacific Northwest, you know, there's like thousands of waterfalls. There's not hundreds, there's thousands of waterfalls, but only like 15 of them are ever photographed because those are the ones that you see on on Instagram or whatever. You can go walk up just about any stream that you cross and there's going to be a waterfall more most likely, you know. It might not be, you know, some of the bigger more impressive ones, but there doesn't mean that they're not photogenic. Yeah, it's, and that's and that's true with with everything. Uh, not just waterfalls, but that's that's a good analogy. Yeah, there's there's just stuff like that everywhere. How important is it for you to create work that has not already been created or people are not also photographing? I noticed that you don't go to Mesa Arch very often. <laughs> uh, it's It's the point of what I do. I like that. That's where the sense of being an original artist kind of comes from, you know, it, I make the analogy, I don't know if you've ever heard me make it, but it's a lot like music. You can either be a cover band or you can write your own songs. And completely agree. And I, I feel so much more satisfied when I write my own song rather than playing Smoke on the Water again. You know? Absolutely. No doubt about it. Agree a hundred percent. What tips do you have for creating images with more depth? Well, I think that uh we first have to understand that we're working within a two-dimensional medium as photographers we're going to show people these images on screens on print what have you so anything that you can do to create more three-dimensionality is the key and to do that we need to create transitions uh, that are fluid and unbroken all the way through the entire image that lead either from near to far or far to near or from everything that is not our focal point to our focal point. And by transitions, I mean something called a a level of blacks, atmospherics, uh, where you have a heavy black in the front, the near objects, a mid black in the mid grounds, the the mid objects and a very light, hazy, misty level of black in in the background, atmosphere, level of blacks, transition uh, that is fluid and unbroken from the near to the far or from everything that isn't your focal point to your focal point. Also, dark to light, cool to warm, higher contrast to lower contrast, more saturated to less saturated, big to small. Uh, Every leading line that we've ever seen in our life is a big to small transition. It's just a different way of, of wording it. And by keeping in mind those transitions and how they need to flow through the image, we can create cohesive three-dimensional visual path in the direction that the view we want to take the viewer. It almost is like you've said that before, because <laughs> all of that was on point. Like that, I agree with absolutely everything you just said. It's one of those things that I preach a lot, like especially in my workshops and teaching post-processing is the, the importance of those transitions. I've never worded it quite exactly the same, but I 100% agree with everything. Yeah, I've been uh, giving seminars on how to create three-dimensionality since 2006. So yeah, I've, I've, I've said that before. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So Mark, 
you are known for not only for the impressive places that you go, but for the really dramatic processing style as well. How long do you figure like for a, a piece of art that you really like, how long do you spend processing that? Uh, if it's a telephoto image, probably about 20 or 30 minutes. If it's a super wide angle image, uh, probably one to two hours. Okay. And I think when you look at wide angles, there's a lot uh, higher percent chance that there's going to be different lighting, different colors, different textures, different subjects, and different zones. You have to work on a more individual basis to make a cohesive whole, whereas uh, your longer lenses are typically going to feature more of the same lighting and more consistencies mm -hmm. in subject, texture, color, etc., etc., uh, not to say that I don't make big adjustments to either image. I just find that wide angles are a lot more processing intensive. A lot of times you have to deal with the either exposure blending. Sometimes they need focus stacked. All those little technical things add up to a, a longer, slower edit. Yeah, I think, you know, you get the technical stuff with long lenses sometimes, too. I mean, I've had to do 25 image focus stacks with long lenses. But wow. strangely enough, I mean, I don't even consider that you know, post-processing. I, I just right. consider that this boring technical thing that you just have to do mm -hmm. before you can start the fun stuff, which is the post-processing. <laughs> right, exactly. That's, that's one of the things I always say is like, you know, I'll do the exposure blend and the focus stack. And then I say, now we get a post-process it. Yeah. <laughs> and now yeah. we get to start editing. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. So another thing that comes up is, and I've talked about this a little bit before, but everybody kind of has to find that line in the sand of, you know, how much post-processing they're willing to do. And it's a total, you know, personal preference thing. And sometimes it's a controversial thing, but I don't think that it should be. Where where do you personally draw the line for what you consider too much? Like how far will you push an edit in the in the sake of creating art that you're happy with? Can my viewer recognize the spot that they saw in my photograph if they were standing there? I'm a guide first and foremost. Uh, that's what I do. That's my profession is giving people new experiences in nature. Mm -hmm. If I photograph a mountain and they go to that spot and they say to themselves, wow, you know, this mountain, you know, the shape of it, the the size of it, the relationship it has with its surroundings is, is completely unrecognizable and they can't figure out how to make that photograph, you know, look like mine. That for me is, is too far. You know, obviously if I take people, you know, around the world to this remote location and they've wanted to go there for ages because they've seen my photograph or other people's photographs of it and then they get there and it doesn't look anything like uh, our photograph, well, then they ended up getting kind of grumpy. <laughs> yeah, they feel just a tiny <laughs> bit like, cheated. hey, wait a second, I can't, you know. So, What do you I, mean Mount Rainier doesn't have a pointy top? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, when I look online, Rainier seems to get taller every year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think uh, for me, it comes down to what I uh, call permanent subject matter. So I think that it's accepted that every person that goes to a landscape is going to see a different sky with different colors, with different atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. But it, we have to keep in mind, A, you know, what is what subjects are permanent 
you know, something like a, a river, a lake, a mountain, or the shape of those objects, they're not going to change, even though the shape and color and light on the clouds is, is going to change. We also have to keep in mind what's going to occur at what times and what places. You know, if we get into compositing and blending of things, then, you know, I'm not going to uh, put a lenticular wave cloud over New York City. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to put... Uh, a palm tree, you know, there's well, <laughs> in a, in a conifer forest, just weather, you know, there's, there's certain types of, of clouds and storms and formations that just don't really occur, you know, at places, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, you might see somebody, uh, want to do a composite of those things. And, you know, we have to be cognizant of, of what would really happen. I think it all comes down to that uh, singular question, could it have happened? If it could happen, then I don't necessarily have a problem with it from a you know Photoshop perspective or from the perspective of being a guide. But if it just could not have happened, if the Milky Way could never have been there, if the moon could never have been over that peak, if that kind of cloud could never have formed over that terrain, then I wouldn't do it. That's the thing is everybody has their different line in the sand and it's, there's no right or wrong. It's just where we've all kind of chosen to put our little line in the sand for our own comfort zone and kind of getting back to the thrill of the chase idea for me, like trying to get the conditions to line up with the, you know, with the subject matter for me, that's a large part of the fun. And one of the reasons that I don't bring in a sky that didn't happen is just because it gives me a good solid reason to go back. And that's just my own personal line in the sand. And that's the thing about art is there's no right or wrong. It's just whatever, whatever people choose to do. It doesn't mean that you can't use a wah pedal in your song. You can use whatever the hell, you know, instrument you want to use in your song because it's your song. And I think a lot of people get very serious about the whole idea of documenting nature rather than creating art about a location. You know, for me, you can tell a, a, a story that embodies the essence and characteristics of, of nature, you know, in either case. I mean, it's just it doesn't matter whether it's a fiction story or a nonfiction story. Right. You can make it very evocative of a place in nature. Uh, but I certainly get what you're saying about you know, uh, not wanting to, you know, distort things to such an extent that it doesn't, you know, give you a reason to go back. I mean, if we could just create any light and any atmosphere and any sky and, you know, that we wanted, you know, just with a few clicks of a button, then, then why, why would you yeah. want to go back? And at least why would you want to go back to create art? Uh, yeah, sometimes giving yourself those those false restrictions, it makes you work within them and it gives you something to work towards. You know, so sometimes those restrictions can be liberating just because you've got to work within them just for your own creative choices. You know, oh, for sure. That's a part of the addictive quality of, you know, what we do is, you know, if you could just make anything perfect the first time, then where's where's the fun in that where's it, it's it's addictive because it's it's not perfect the perfect shot is is always still out there another question that came in is does mark adamus feel like he is still learning yeah uh, absolutely i think my certainly the way that i process images changes uh, every year actually if you looked at one of my videos i did two years ago it doesn't look anything like one of my videos i did today you know and i've been post-processing with Photoshop for like 
I don't even know what the 18 years maybe now. So it's uh, certainly in terms of what I do in uh, the post-processing and how that relates, of course, you know, and inevitably it relates to what I do in the field. It's always changing. I think, you know, I'm always learning more about different places, different locations. This year, I really had the time, thanks to the pandemic, to, to finally go out uh, storm chasing in the Great Plains. And I spent uh, several weeks doing that this year. And uh, that was that was a big learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. I had always resisted doing it my my whole life just because I knew it was going to be too addictive. I knew it could take over my entire life and I'd never want to do anything else. And I was right. I mean, <laughs> I want to I want to spend three months out there, you know, next year if I can just storm chasing. But it's, it's you know, there's there's always new new avenues uh, from places to post-processing to how to prepare for trips uh you you never stop learning in this game when you stop learning it just gets boring and you move on to something else with your life um you know we kind of talked a little bit about it but especially this year i feel like it's it's relative your activity on social media has kind of been different than some a lot of People were like early adopters of Instagram and had a Facebook page and, you know, had Flickr and all of this. And it used to be like when, you know, I think when I was first kind of starting photography, 500 PX was very much where Mark Adamus was. And you didn't even start an Instagram account till like last year or maybe slightly before that. Maybe talk about like your personal choices with social media, where you've chosen to put work and why you chose to put it there. Well, yeah, I started 500 uh, PX uh, quite a bit later than a lot of people too. I, I remember just about everybody was on there before I was, um, you know, prior to that, uh, I did a lot of, uh, nature photographers network and some smaller sites. And mm-hmm. prior to that, I was uh, really involved with photo.net, but yeah, I, I always do seem to be one of the last ones, <laughs> at least as a professional to join whatever, new you know social network there is for photographers online i think part of that is just due to my own hesitancy when it comes to online interaction Uh, i'm not really that passionate about it i don't think that i feel the need for it the way that a lot of people seem to feel these days uh i'm just as happy not having uh any you know, online interaction for the entire rest of my life. Uh, it, it would be, it are you saying that you don't do it for the gram? Yeah. Um, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. You know, I, I've always just been very wary of how the whole social media aspect of things was going to affect us in society. I, I, I just feel much more comfortable interacting with people on a more personal level. I, I I completely agree. You know, I people say things online that they would never say to somebody's face. You know, and that, that's oftentimes what I think it, when people, especially trolls, they, I get a lot of it on YouTube because I feel like people on YouTube are just brutal sometimes. But you know, people say things behind that that shield of the screen that they would never say to somebody's face. Absolutely. And it's there's and then there's the whole like, you know, impact on nature that 
sites like Instagram and geotagging and those things can have. I've witnessed it the, the very hard way where I've made those very serious mistakes where in my early YouTube videos, I would go to a location and I would say, here I am at such and such falls and make a video not realizing that actually there's going to be a lot of people that watch that video someday. And then I would go there the following year and run into a bunch of people that were there because they saw my video. And then, you know, fast forward three years later and that waterfall is trashed. And I had a big part of why it was trashed because so many people saw that video and then those people would geotag it and it would just escalate. And I think that, you know, it's not something I've talked about much on this podcast because I feel like there's other podcasts that really drive it home. But social media can have a really, really negative well, impact turning, on They're person. turning nature into a consumer market. You know, I yeah. what I want to do is I want to give people a new experience that they find deeply enlightening on on a, a much bigger level, on a much deeper level, I should say. It's, uh, you know, I want to you know, give people the tools to go out and explore uh, nature and to discover, you know, nature, not just with me, but by themselves uh, or with the people that they care about, you know, and I, I feel like, yeah, too much of what you see online in regards to nature just taps into that consumer world, you know, that we mm-hmm. live in. Let's just make it as easy as possible for people to buy this one thing you know, from somebody else or to, to take this one thing from somebody else and, and put it on their own, you know, website or whatever. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, I feel like people see locations as like something to conquer. You know, I can't count how many times. Yeah. uh, I can't count how many people have said, yeah, I did Mesa Arch or I did this location. It's it's big game hunting. You know, people used to go big game hunting just to put a rack on their wall, just to get a trophy. You know, it's uh, it's a very consumeristic uh, approach to things and it's it's not good for nature. It's the antithesis of uh, what our time in, in nature should be. So I guess this kind of leads us into what I wanted to end with. And it's um, based on something that you shared last Friday on Instagram and I shared it as well. Maybe you can kind of go into that a little bit. Well, as I said, I'm, I'm very concerned. I'm very always been very wary about where this social media age is leading us. I think it's a great social experiment that we've endeavored mm-hmm. into and there's there's no... Uh, way to back out of it. We're definitely in an era now where social media shapes every last little bit of of everything. You know, I think that that's that's inevitably where where it's leading. Here, we're going to have to figure it out. You know, we're going to have to figure out how to get along with one another. It's it's a great it's a great social experiment having all of this uh, information about everyone and everything. I think a lot of the mechanisms that we had in place, you know, that we had built, you know, carefully throughout history, you know, throughout evolution for helping to, you know, develop deep interpersonal relationships have disappeared. I think that the reason that I'm so wary about uh, social media is the control that can be exercised over the population almost un- unknowingly. I mean, everything that we have that we see on our on our streams, on our daily news cycles is targeted algorithmically towards us. 
specifically, we're advertised to in a way that no other person is advertised to. We see news that no other person sees. Every single person is getting their own news cycle, their own ad cycle, their own information cycle based on their own direction of thought. And it is very hard to ever be able to come together as a populace, as a a people, as a society, as a civilization, when everybody is being pulled down their own little rabbit hole by forces that are completely hidden behind the scenes. Uh, You used to be able to investigate where news was coming from, where ads were coming from, who was paying for the ads, what have you. I mean, now it's it's all these giant conglomerates like Facebook that are hiding that information from the public. You don't know where this information is coming from, but you're getting it and it's targeted towards you. And when you you know, look back 30 or 40 years ago, almost the entire population would get their news from the same, you know, three television channels. People would get their, you know, news from the same newspaper, from from their church, the same one that everybody and all their friends uh, went to. And when you have those, uh, you know, mass media mechanisms in place, it's just a lot easier to bring people together and rally around a cause. And now I don't think you have that anymore because everybody's out for their own cause. Everybody's getting different information. Everybody's going down their own rabbit hole and it's being used to divide us. And it's not, it's not harmless. It's, it's, it's intentionally being used to divide us. I really believe that it is. I, I think that if you look at the advantages of having a population that doesn't know what to believe and doesn't trust each other and each other's information and doesn't trust the media, uh, it's easier to control them, divide and conquer. That's where we're at right now. It benefits authoritarian regimes around the world. We've seen a worldwide trend in that direction. And it really frustrates me that this is the way that we're going, you know, with social media with our online world where everybody's getting different information that's targeted towards them, that's manipulated, that it's hard to trace, you know, and if you look at one of the fundamentals of a highly functioning unified society, it's a trust in the media. If you don't have a trust in your journalists to do the right thing, to bring you the right information, then who do you have a trust in? It's, you know, a a sad state of affairs, I think, where this whole social media age is leading us. And I can only hope that our children that grew up in this society where this is the way that you consume and find information and solutions to problems, find a way to handle this better than we have. Because I think that right now we're on a one-way street towards conflict and confusion and control. You know, it's it's very frustrating to me, and I've always been very wary of it. And I know that the the best times for me in life are always when I am there making personal 
connections in front of people, talking to people face to face, teaching people face to face, giving them new experiences, uh, listening to them, them listening to me. Uh, and it's just something that cannot be replicated uh, for me anyway online. I think right now, more than any other time that I can remember, social media has such a negative impact on my mental health. You know, I I feel myself getting depressed with every minute that ticks by when I'm, you know, especially Facebook right now, because Facebook is nothing more than just people arguing. Yeah. And I've it, never even been on Facebook before. And that's that's why. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, it's, I, I mean, I only really joined Instagram because, you know, it's what you have to do as a professional photographer. I would rather just yeah. never do any of this stuff again. And the problem with, you know, especially Facebook, but all social media in a way is it's so negatively, it, it rewards negativity. You know, the, the more people get, you know, worked up and arguing back and forth, it, the more those kinds of things get boosted in the algorithm. And it's, it's just like this negative exactly. cycle. It's algorithmically filtered to create conflict. And then, you know, you throw into the mix like a global pandemic and some civil unrest and holy cow, it's a bad time. <laughs> That's, and so I think uh, kind of getting back to what you shared the other day, the, the idea is to try to be unified on something. Yeah. And if we could just unify landscape photographers that love nature towards protecting nature and just being, you know, at least we can agree that this is important. And it was, you know, and we should be able to, but I also think that this, this era of social media and misinformation and the mistrust of news and journalists and science and, and everything is directly playing a role in our collective failure to solve environmental problems that are very pressing. Uh, if we can't believe what science is telling us, if we can't believe the news that we're getting, then we can't solve any problems, including those that relate to nature that are very, very pressing and we need to be able to address. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part of, especially in America, everything has been politicized you know, right and wrong has been politicized. It, you know, nature conservation is a totally a political argument now, and it shouldn't be. There needs to be more common sense and less, you know, divisive partisan argument about some of the most basic. Yeah. And I, and I want it to be known that I don't blame any one particular political party for this or administration for this, even though it would be easy to do right. that. I blame social media. That's what I blame. I think social media is the root of so much anxiety and mental health problems and absolutely you know, well, look at mental health problems, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're triple what it was when we were kids. They're tenfold what they were when our parents were kids, probably. I mean, it's, uh, it's incredible. I mean, mental health issues have just exploded. You know, they're on a one way street straight up, you know, more and more all the time uh, since the advent of social media, especially. <sighs> so, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that this is where we're at. And again, I mean, I just have to look at the fact that this is a social experiment, you know, that has kind of consumed our generation. But I also believe that humans are very adaptable and have the ability to learn and to to conquer their environments and and 
you know, with time, you know, I look at my son's generation that were on, you know, social media from birth, you know, they're going to figure this out better than we did. They're, they're, they are going to solve these problems that I'm talking about right now that are confronting us, or at least they're going to be able to cope with them better than our generation has. And we're just right now we're, we're in a period of change. And I think you could even argue that we're in a period of, of growth as a society. And sometimes you have to break stuff down and tear stuff apart and have a really difficult uh, time of it before you can grow. Uh, And it's just a part of the process. And I think that you know, whatever happens right now, hopefully, you know, we'll find a way to, to build it back, you know, stronger and better for everyone in, in the future once we get past this, these turbulent times we're in at the moment. So I think if we were to put like a point on the moral of the story, it would be to be kind to one another, talk to people like you would if you were talking to them in person and love your environment, love, love nature and be good. Damn it. And maybe get off Facebook for a while. (laughs) Yeah, definitely get off Facebook for a while. I feel better when I spend far less time. If I go a full day without being on Facebook, I feel myself so much more positive about the world than I do if I spend too much time arguing with idiots on Facebook. Because there's there's never a shortage of people that you could argue with on there. But the important thing is to make the choice to not not to do that because you always could, but it takes, it takes a little bit of willpower to not do that and spend your day in a more positive, uh, productive way. It's, it's almost like we just all suddenly moved to a, a new planet where there was no rules, no societal structure in place. Nobody knew anyone, nobody knew anybody's beliefs or histories or anything. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we all just got you know, stuck on that planet together and we had to come together and form a, a new society and a new way of living together. And that's, that's what we're faced with in this online, you know, planet that we're all living on now. Yep. It's a new way of interacting with people for sure. Yeah. Well, what a weird way to end the show, Mark. <laughs> we- hey, you asked. I know, I know. It's my fault for asking. Thank you so much for coming on, man. This has been a good time. I I appreciate it, Nick. Thanks so much. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we'll see you in the next episode. Take it easy, everybody. Take care.